Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to get into the Word this morning. I want to continue on in the subject we have been talking about. Uh, I am fully aware that this is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, It's Memorial Day. It's Pentecost Sunday. Man, there's all kinds of things we need to be doing up here. Uh, But uh, we're going to continue on in the vein that we've been talking about, the spiritual war, and uh, the war that we're in. And I, wanna, I want to continue on on the whole subject of what the Bible refers to as familiar spirits. And so we're going to look at that. How, how do we combat that in our life? What is that? Is that even an issue in the New Testament? Uh, and I'm here to tell you it is. And if you have doubts, go back and listen to the last couple installments, and I lay some groundwork on that. But I want to continue to look at that, uh, and I want to look at heaven's answer for that. Uh, the fact is, you know, the, the, in the King James Version, in Galatians, uh, one of the sins of the flesh is called emulations. It means you're going to emulate someone. You're going to try to be like them. That you're going to use somebody else as the pattern for your life. You're going to look at them and say, I want to be like them. And that, what that's rooted in is self-rejection, and so we, we adopt someone else's persona, and we say we want to be like them. The problem is that job has already been taken by that person. And so in rejecting who we are, we try to be somebody else, and it becomes a work of the flesh that the enemy rides in on. And so we want to, we want to be able to own who we are. We want to be who God created us to be because that job is not been taken. It's still open for you to step into. God has works prepared in advance that you may walk in them. In other words, there is a hole in human history that is perfectly designed for you, and it's waiting for you to arrive and fill that hole and to fulfill your destiny. So emulations is a sin of the flesh. And I'm going to tell you that the enemy is guilty of the sin of emulations. The sin, the, the, the enemy is not, uh, he's not a creative. He's a copycat. He, he copies what God does. He doesn't create anything. He hijacks the systems that God has designed and he tries to leverage them for his ends. And so familiar spirits operate in a way that the angels do as well. Let me just let that settle for a minute. In prayer this week, I was, as we were praying, we get together in the mornings and I'm, I'm praying and I felt like the Lord began to speak to me about this principle. What he said to me was, what familiar spirits are to the kingdom of darkness, my angelic host are to the kingdom of God. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thought. I'll have to chase that down, which I've been doing all week. And uh, so that's what I want to look at. I want to look at how, how does that work? How do we cooperate with the kingdom of God? And, how, and because there's a generational thing to the spiritual realm, okay? There's a reason that God refers to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is always working generationally, and so is the enemy. The spiritual realm operates outside of time and space. It's not limited by those things. It's looking generationally. How can I affect generations? So familiar spirits enable, er, attempt to uh, corrupt generations. They, they attempt to cause, uh, cause 
darkness and woundedness and corruption in one generation and then carry that on for generations. That's what a familiar spirit does. That's why the word familiar, the, uh, the Spanish root is familia, family. It's, it, it, they are spirits that traffic in families and not just biological families, church families. You know, churches can have a problem with familiar spirits. There are churches that have had problems for generations. I'll tell you, this church was once known as a preacher-killing church. It isn't anymore. I wouldn't be here. I've been here 21 years. I've been here. I've been attending here 27 years. <laughs> but it's not a preaching-killing church. But the credit to that goes to my predecessor, J. Albert Calloway. He broke the back of that thing. That was, he was a guy who thrived in conflict. Matter of fact, he liked it. It motivated him. He would get up on a Sunday morning. I, I, he actually said this sometimes from the pulpit. I just told someone off in the lobby, and I'm more anointed than ever. Let's get in the Word. <laughs> Thinking, whoo. But he was a man made to turn this thing around. There had never been a pastor who had left on his own accord until J. Arbel Calloway. This church was established the year I discovered America, 1965. And so the, he, the, it had never had a pastor that had left on, its own, on his own accord. He was either, there was a secret vote to oust him or there was moral failure. And it was the enemy's attack against the assignment on this church. And the enemy's attack on your family is an assignment against the, the or attack against the assignment on your family. Do you know that God chooses families? Again, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. It's a principle, it's a template. God operates through families. And so there's a legacy for the kingdom that each one of us carries. We have an inheritance from the past. We need to pull out of that the, the, the negative so that familiar spirits can't traffic in that. But we also need to discern the positive so that we can see the inheritance, the legacy, the testimony that God wants to uh, deliver to, he wants to land in human history through our family. I want to say it's Psalm 73. It says, God established a testimony in Jacob. That's not an anomaly. That's not an isolated one off thing that, you know, Jacob was unique. God established a testimony through Jacob, but he is attempting to do the same through you. And it's never going to be a one generational thing. Even if you never have biological children, you may, be, you may have the gift of celibacy. So that, that's a gift not a lot of people pray for, but some people really do have a grace gift. They have no interest in marriage. There's, there's a, a, a gift that is on their life so that they can be focused on the kingdom. It's called a gift of celibacy. And even if you have that, there is a generational legacy that you're to carry. Because God calls families, spiritual families and biological families. And out of that, God wants to establish things in the earth. And so when you have a spiritual family, there's things that you will break into as a mom or pop in the spirit that you, your children, those who come after you, those you invest in, they'll get for free things for that you had to labor for. And that's the way of the kingdom. And God wants to establish certain things and, and uh, land certain things in human history through our lives. And so when we talk about this generational element to the kingdom, and make no mistake about it, the spiritual realm is much more aware of generational momentum, much more aware of callings on families than you and I are. 
the enemy very well may be more in tune with what's on your life than you are because he recognizes it. And God will establish something in a, in a family member. What did he do? He chose Abram. And he said, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I will bless the nations of the earth. And what happened? He had one kid. Well, he had two. He had Ishmael too. But he had one kid through which the promise would come. That's hardly this spectacular fulfillment, the second generation of what he was. A, a, a nation that will bless the nations? I had one child of promise? But that one child had two children. Those two children had children. And today we have the nation of Israel that we've been grafted into by faith and it's blessed the nations of the earth. But again, that's not an anomaly. That's not an isolated event just unique to Abraham. That is the way of the kingdom. So God wants to operate generationally. And so what we need to do is we need to be looking at the generations of our family through the eyes of the Spirit and recognize the negative things that we need to deal with and recognize the positive things that we need to deal with. We need to recognize those negative elements and we're going to talk about that. How do we, how do we rid ourselves? Uh, let, me, let me just read through some things for clarity's sake. Uh, I've got 50 different versions of notes this week. Uh, a familiar spirit attaches itself to a family generationally. This is true of biological families, church families, and even nations. There are nations that carry certain dysfunction. And when we are born into those nations, then we need to bless that which is good and deal with that which is bad. We need to deal with the negative so that's not carried on. Uh, so familiar spirits attempt to create patterns of belief and behavior in order to replicate certain results generationally. Now let me just pause here. There's, this demands a theological question, and the question is this. Are we not, so when we talk about familiar spirits and generational curses and generational negativity, you know, evil traveling through generations, uh, when we talk about that, what we're really talking about is what people refer to as a generational curse. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? Generational curse. So then that begs this question. And it's a question you'll, you get on YouTube and type that in, you're going to hear all kinds of things because people will say, wait a minute, are we not redeemed from the curse of the law? Good question. A necessary theological question. And the, the answer to that is absolutely we are redeemed from the curse of the law. But a generational curse is not the curse of the law. A generational curse is something different. In, in a more simple terms, you could say it's this. It's the enemy's attempt to cultivate beliefs and feelings to elicit behavior that then gives that spirit the legal right to visit the negative consequences of that behavior on, the, on future generations. Say it again. So what he does is he tries to stir up and reinforce negative lies in the minds of those family members, and elicit certain feelings. It's in the soul, okay? It's beliefs in our mind, feelings in our emotions to elicit decisions in our will, to drive us towards certain behaviors. Because once we enter into that negative behavior, we have established the legal right for the enemy to begin to enforce negative consequences in our life. 
Doesn't, doesn't mean you're not redeemed from the curse of the law. But you can be redeemed from the curse of the law and act wrongly and suffer the consequences. So when we talk about generational curses, part of the problem is we don't define these terms. And I know people are grappling for language to communicate this dynamic that we're talking about. But really what a generational curse is, it is first and foremost psychological, then sociological before it's spiritual. It's psychological because it's a matter of our thinking, our believing, our feeling, and our behaving. It's sociological because then it becomes relational. It it creates, uh, you put it this way, your lack of emotional, uh, mental health, and when I'm talking about mental health, I'm not talking about the kind that will land you, but it can, land you in a psych ward, it can, but I'm talking about you not having a sound mind that we were singing about this morning. And by the way, it wasn't a coincidence that the Lord orchestrated that song for this morning. Okay, because it's what we're talking about. If we lack personal psychological health, emotional health, then what that's gonna do is it's gonna breed relational dysfunction. So if, we, if it doesn't happen in me, it won't happen between we. <laughs> so the way, how does, God, how does God begin to heal us relationally? How do, because relational dysfunction in the church is a breeding ground for the demonic. The enemy doesn't just come in on his own. He rides the backs of dysfunctional people. And so what we need to do is we need to get healed and whole so as we are healed and we are whole, emotional health is a bulwark, is a defense against the demonic. And so once we are healthy individually, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, then we can be healthy relationally. But if we don't get healthy individually, then what happens is we're not healthy relationally and the enemy begins to come into that, those inroads and really wreak havoc in a church. And that's where you see familiar spirits. That's what happened in this church. Heartland for many years was a preacher killing church because of the relational dysfunction. Healthy culture is the result of healthy relationships and healthy people. And a church can only absorb so many unhealthy people before it begins to tip into a lack of health unless we're being aggressive about getting people whole. That's why we promote Christ's life and deliverance and these types of things, discipleship. Because if we don't do that, then people will bring their stuff with them. We said a couple weeks ago, and this isn't original with me, some, some dude on social media I got it from, and I liked it. I thought, that's accurate. I, so I borrowed it, and then I'm seeing it show up on all this social media. Uh, but I'm gonna be honest with you and tell you, I didn't get it. I saw another guy. One of them wasn't honest because they were both trumpeting the same thing. But anyway, that's another story. Okay, he said the church is a hospital, a family, and an army. I thought, man, that, that's so true. It's a hospital. You enter as... People who have been wounded, we were a prisoner of war, we got delivered out of the war, but now we're, we're still, we need, some of us need triage, man. Some of it, we need, we need to fix what was broken as the result of living in a fallen world so that we can be part of a healthy family, so that we can be equipped to go back into the war and rescue others. Yeah. 
This, the war speaks of our assignment, the family speaks of our identity, but this hospital deals with our woundedness. Don't join the family and skip the hospital because you bring your woundedness into the family and it creates a dysfunctional family that becomes a breeding ground for the demonic. I'm telling you, the enemy is very aware of churches that begin to have spiritual depth and substance because they begin to register in the spiritual realm. And I'm, and, and I'm here to tell you that the size of a congregation is not necessarily an indication of the spiritual maturity or strength, spiritual strength of that congregation. Man, I've been in churches of 20, 25 people full of some special forces agents. And I've been in some churches, thousands gather. I was just talking to a guy the other day. Man, he used every name in the book and F this and F that. And then he was telling me about the church that he goes to. I was kind of shocked. I about fell over. That well, you know, I'm not questioning your salvation, but I, I think there's a lack of maturity there. And it, I'm not saying it's indicative of that church, but it concerned me, okay? So we need to get healed because that is a protection against the inroads of the enemy. What the enemy does is he looks when he sees a church beginning to rise in spiritual power and authority, he looks to find a body that he can ride into there and see if he can find an opening relationally and begin to create dissension and disunity and gossip. And he wants to sabotage that thing from within. He knows he can't conquer it from without. He learned that through Balaam. Balaam couldn't curse Israel. So what he did is he enticed them into sexual immorality so he could get in. And so we need, to, we need to make sure we're being whole and healthy. And so generational curses are nothing more and nothing less than belief systems and the feelings that result from those belief systems that drive us to dysfunctional slash sinful behavior that then provides the legal right for the enemy to begin to bring those consequences into our life. And all the time we're scratching, well, why, our head, why, why, why is all this happening? When in actuality, our own belief systems have produced the fruit of that. We've provided the enemy with a landing strip. And so we've got to confront those belief systems. Amen? All right. I'm, I'm just tempted to ask if there's any questions this morning, but this is not the setting for it. Okay. So they attempt to create patterns of belief and behavior in order to replicate certain results generationally. This is true in both the kingdom of darkness as well as the kingdom of God. Whereas the demonic attempts to reinforce beliefs and behaviors which incite negative spiritual consequences, the angelic attempt to move us into the place of blessing where God can side with us and not against us. You say, well, how could God ever be against us? You can put yourself in a position where God is forced to discipline you. Doesn't mean he's against you as in he, he has ill will towards you. But I would rather, there's a psalm. I, I want to say it's Psalm 72. It says, do not be like the horse or mule who must be led by bit and bridle. He, would, he said, I would guide thee, this is the King James Version, I would guide thee with mine eye. What's he saying? 
God wants to lead you with a look. There's such an intimacy that you see that look in his eye. I know my wife. You, you can see her and you think, you have no idea what she's thinking. I, there's certain looks I, well, I know what that means. Glory to God. <laughs> sometimes the fear of God comes on me. Sometimes the, the, the joy of the Lord comes on me, but it's a look. Why? Because we're intimate with each other. We know each other. And God wants to lead you with a look. He loves you enough to lead you with pain if he has to. That's what a bit and bridle is. You ever put a bit and bridle in a, on a horse's mouth? That is extremely uncomfortable set of dentures for that animal. Because what you're doing is you're putting a metal rod in the back of their mouth with two eye holes. Then you put a leather strap to keep it in place so we can't get out of it. And then you put two ropes or leather straps in those eye holes so that if you want to turn right, you cause pain on the right side. And he's like, and he learns real quick, oh, if I feel a tug, you know, you know the word meekness? One of the definitions of the word meek is for a horse that is broken. You can meek a horse. A meeked horse, there are horses that can be so well trained that you literally just move them with your, the movement of your legs. Very highly trained animal. Those, those type, the animals that are trained at that level, they say they will literally stay in a barn while it burns down around them until released by their master. I want to be like that. I want to be the one that will stay in a burning building until the master says, go. But that comes through training and discipline from the Lord. And the way the Lord gets us there is often he has to lead us with pain because he loves us enough to do so. And if, we'll, if we learn to respond to the nudge or the look, he doesn't have to use the pain. But he will because he loves you enough. Okay, I'm meddling, so let's, let's go back here. So, familiar spirits are not a species per se. I, I want us to understand this. I don't believe, now this is my personal opinion, you'll find out I'm right when we get to heaven. Familiar spirits are not a species per se. This term refers to a function, a, a, a function, a strategy of the spiritual realm which, pl which plays off a spiritual reality the church has very little understanding of. That reality is generational momentum. The enemy understands the dynamics of psychology and sociology, okay? God is the great psychologist. He designed our psyche. And we as believers and as disciples and as leaders and those who attempt to help people, we must be students of a biblical psychology, of learning how to interpret and work and motivate the soul of man from a biblical perspective, okay? If you don't understand it, you're not going to be able to help people. Because you, what you're doing, you're, you're forced to just deal with everything as a purely spiritual matter. So I'm just going to pray it away. Good luck on that. There is, there is, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, there is the event and the process. God will touch you, but it's got to be followed up by the process of renewing your mind so that your mind begins to line up with what happened in your heart. So that you begin to have a grid work and you can explain it to others. So that you come into agreement with what happened. So it's not merely an event that you look back at and say, that was cool, but you're left unchanged. So we have to go through a process of renewing our mind and getting our emotions healed so that we can go from glory to glory. Instead of just keep taking the same 
the same hill again and again and again and again and again. It's not God's will. And so, familiar spirits are not a species. They, they deal with this reality of generational momentum. So the enemy understands psychology, understands sociology. Sociology is simply the study of human interaction, human relationships. And I'm telling you, we need a revelation of this as the church. How, does our, how is our spiritual life affected by our interaction with one another, relationally? If you understood it to the level, the, the reality of Scripture, then you would be much more careful about the people you open yourself up to relationally. You'd be much more intentional about pursuing some relationships and much more intentional about guarding yourself from others. I'm not talking about ministry. I'm talking about resource. I'm talking about drawing from somebody. Your relationships are a mirror or a window into your emotional health. You attract your level of spiritual and emotional maturity. That's why you can actually outgrow very close relationships. You ever notice that? You got someone that you're really good friends with, and you drift apart, and you look back and think, man, there wasn't really, we didn't, kind of, we didn't have a big blowout. You know, we just, we just kind of stopped hanging around each other. One of you outgrew the other. I, I would re highly recommend being the person that's on the growth spurt. Amen. So, familiar spirits, okay. Fa families are the breeding ground or the greenhouse designed by God to produce and release certain things into human history. The culture of a family or a group of people, okay, we're talking sociology here, <laughs> A family or a group of people, the culture of a family or a group of people, produces momentum for their shared values to be produced and disseminated into the earth. Cultures cultivate. There's a reason. Those, they share the same root word, cult, which means to worship or value. See, your values, when, when you really own your values, then you attract people who share those values and repel others who do not. And then those shared values become shared. It becomes your cult, your value becomes a culture, which in turn cultivates that in your life. You can gain momentum. You, you can go after something individually and lack momentum until you hook up with others that are going after the same thing. And all of a sudden there's momentum because you're actually cultivating those values in your interaction with those people. They're going to bring perspectives and revelation and uh, motivation and uh, accountability that you don't have on your own. And so we cultivate those values. And here's the good things. Here's the good thing. When you're a pastor, if you can become an expert at cultivating culture, you, it's actually becomes the undertow of leadership that the organization will continue to go in the same direction even in your absence. Why? Because there's been created an undertow. It's no longer just that the, the top of the river that's pulling that boat along. There is an undertow of shared values. There's an old saying in leadership culture that says, culture eats vision for lunch. And that is true. You can talk about your vision all you want, but if you have culture that contradicts your vision, your culture will win. 
Culture is often unconscious, and what we need to do is we need to bring it to a conscious level and really look at this thing. What are we really valuing, and what are we really going after, and what is going to endanger this? In fact, I would, I would propose to you that you are going to have a hard time really understanding the vision God has for your life. Because make no mistake about it, vision is not designed. We don't, we don't orchestrate, we don't manufacture vision, we dis cover it. What is God's purpose for our life? We uncover that. We get in touch with that. How? One of the great ways we do that is we begin to get in touch with the things that are values within us. What makes us laugh? What makes us cry? What makes us fight and mad? What are the non-negotiables? And what are the things we'd say, ah, I'm not going to die on that hill. Don't like it, but I'm not going to die on that hill. That's not a core value. And so those things begin to define who we are and really begin to narrow down. This is what God has called me to. I'm telling you, we need to get a hold of this. There is a reason that you live in this moment of human history. There is something that God wants to bring into human history through your life. That's not just for a few chosen leaders in the world and then the rest of us just kind of sit on the sides and watch it happen. Every one of us, God has put things within us that he wants to land in human history. And so we've got to get in touch with that and know what that is. And all of hell is fighting against it and heaven has resources to get you there. So, oh my goodness, okay. Families are the breeding ground or the greenhouse designed by God to produce and release certain things into history. The culture of a family or group of people produces momentum for their shared values to be produced and disseminated into the earth. Culture cultivates. In this way, families are to bless the families of the earth. It's the way of heaven. Abraham was offered. Oh, I won't get into that. Uh, okay. The purpose of a familiar spirit from the demonic perspective is to keep us from our purpose. They attempt to submerge our prophetic calling underneath feelings and belief, beliefs that cause us to give up on or trade our inheritance for lesser things. The enemy is out to whisper to you, you are disqualified. You aren't qualified to do this. Look at your past. Look at what I was praying for someone this morning, and I saw, I saw a picture of the enemy putting a, a, a rearview mirror in front of their face. And he wanted them to live their life looking behind them with regrets, thinking, I coulda, I shoulda, I woulda, rather than looking at the, the windshield and seeing where God wants to take us in our life. God has a purpose for your life and all the mistakes we made are just raw material. He folds in and turns. He, he'll, he'll give you vengeance on the enemy. Those things the enemy used against you, pick them up as a sword and cut Goliath's head off with his own sword. I'm telling you, God wants to use your mistakes as weapons against the enemy. I've wrestled with this grand theological question. Was it really God's will from the foundations of the earth that Dave Olson should stand, spend 14 years working at Teen Challenge with drug addicts? And my great theological answer is I have no idea. I do know this, that what the enemy meant for bad, God said, the enemy really messed Dave's life up because Dave made some really bad decisions, but I'm gonna redeem that, and what I'm gonna teach him, I'm gonna teach him how to get out of that hole, and then I'm gonna spend 14 years helping him help others out of that same hole. God will do the same for you. Matter of fact, your greatest failures are all 
often the seedbed of your calling. God will use those things in your life. So rather than living with regret, get on with it. Rejoice. Get excited about what God wants to do with you. Okay. So the enemy is trying to keep us from our purpose. They, speaking of familiar spirits, demonic spirits, attempt to submerge our prophetic calling underneath these feelings and beliefs that cause us to give up or trade our inheritance for lesser things. The idea of inheritance in Scripture is key to the concept of familiar spirits. It really is. So, but I told you, the Lord, we were praying this week, and all of a sudden this thought entered my mind, and I knew it was God because it was early. I had not had enough coffee, and I was not thinking about this. This was an alien thought that came in from nowhere, this thought that what familiar spirits are to the kingdom of darkness, the angelic is to the kingdom of God. Now, a number of years ago, I was in Atlanta driving down the road with, of all people, Tasir Al-Husani. It was a scary experience. He was driving. And we were, we were driving down the road, and we were having this conversation. And we, somehow we got in on the subject of the angelic, and I had this epiphany. Hebrews chapter 1 says this about angels. You've heard the phrase DTR, define the relationship. That's very important. We're talking about relational health, define the relationship. Because if I think the relationship is something that it's not, see, when I met my wife, God said, that's your wife, treat her like she deserves. I thought I probably ought to get to know her. Luckily, she agreed with my assessment eventually. Had I just went on the word of the Lord and she was resistant to that word, that would have been a very awkward relationship that wouldn't have worked out so we needed to define the relationship and so any relationship we need to define the relationship Hebrews chapter 1 defines the believer's relationship with the angelic this is the verse it says this it's right there in Hebrews 1 uh, I don't know which verse but it's there believe me you can look it up right now it says are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve the heirs of salvation. Let me say it again. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve the heirs of salvation? So the author is establishing the relationship of the believer with the angels. The angels are ministering spirits. They are ministers, servants. The word diakonos, it's servants. They are there to serve or minister to who? the heirs of salvation. But in this relationship, you and I are defined as heirs. We're not, it's not just sent to serve the believers or sent to serve Christians or sent to serve uh, you know, uh, the church. That's not what it says. It's very specific. It's sent to serve the heirs of salvation. Why? Because the angelic exists in your life to move you into your inheritance. That is what they are there for. They are there to aid you to get you into your role and to inherit all that you're called to inherit so you can fulfill your responsibility. Let me give you an Old Testament example of that dynamic. Remember when the children of Israel, they were going into the promised land and God got fed up with Israel and he said, Moses, he said, Mo, I'm done. I am done with these guys. I'm gonna kill them. Moses says, no, God, don't do it. And God says, okay, I will spare them. 
However, I am not going to go with you. I will send an angel with you to take you into what? Your promised land. Where did they get that promise? It's way back. Remember generational momentum, inheritance, all of that? Way back there, great, 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 great grandpappy, Abram, was told by God, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and you will bless all the nations of the earth. And he promised him this land. It was their inheritance. And so he said, I won't go with you, but I'm going to send an angel to get you into your inheritance. And I'm telling you that the angelic exists to fuel the positive elements of your family history. They are there to war with you for your future. And one of the primary ways that happens is as you discern your future, be it through the written word of God, a prophetic word, evaluating the fruit of your, the positive fruit of your family, and you begin to recognize, wow, this is something our family carries. When you recognize that, as you begin to pray into that, and you proclaim that over your family, you actually enlist the angelic to begin to aid you into that. Psalm 103, it says, Praise him, O you angels, comma, you who obey the voice of his word. So it says this phrase concerning angels. They obey the voice of God's word. It's God's word, but God has delegated the authority to you to be a voice for his word in the earth. And this is one of the elements of prayer in and, and a way that we can... We can uh, aid, we can partner with the angelic. Now, let me just pause here. Whenever you start talking about angels, people get nervous. Oh, man, you know, we don't worship angels. I'm not talking about worshiping them. I'm just talking about being biblical. They're all over the scriptures. Do you realize that? Do you realize that we wouldn't even be here without the angels? If you just pull the linchpins of angelic ministry out of the Christmas story, the whole thing falls in on itself. Jesus wouldn't even have got here without the angels. I mean, Mary wouldn't have been open to receiving that impartation. <laughs> Joseph wouldn't have protected her and took her to Egypt. I mean, there are so the, the, the wise men wouldn't have come and funded the journey to protect them with their gifts. The shepherds wouldn't have shown up. You know, there's all this angelic activity that, around it. Daniel wouldn't have functioned in his role without these angelic encounters. I'm not talking about worshiping angels. I'm talking about partnering with our cohorts in the spiritual realm. Are we to be a spiritual people or not? Or are we merely to be, oh, no, those are nice mythological stories in the scripture. Oh, no, that was for then, but now we're just people of science in the natural realm. Look how, how that served the church. We are to be spiritual men and women studying the word and looking at the word. This is the template by which we are to navigate the Christian life. This is the norm, okay? This is not abnormal. It's not occasional. It's not, oh, that's uh, what, what, uh, what theologians call normative. That's the Bible. 
The whole thing is normative, okay? That's what we're to operate in. So for us to have interaction at times with angels is scriptural. Now, Paul says if an angel comes and preaches any other gospel to you, even an angel, let him be cursed. So we weigh everything with the angelic. We weigh it against the word. The word is our standard, not some angelic message. But, but you can still be open to angelic messages from the word. And so the way in which this works is we get a word from the Lord and we pray. We ask God to fulfill what he has already laid on our heart. We begin to pray that. But there's a shifting point where your petition becomes proclamation and you begin to make those declarations over your family and over situations and the angels obey the voice of God's word. That doesn't mean willy-nilly we can just yell anything we want. Corvette, Corvette in my parking space. That doesn't work. Tried it. No, I haven't. I'm just, I did disciple a young man one time. I asked him, I said, where are you out? I got great faith. I said, how do you know? He said, every night I declare a Corvette outside my window, and every morning I look for it. That, well, that's an interesting take on faith. But there, it, it's not just us yelling anything out, but there's a proclamation of the word of the Lord over our life that does fuel angelic ministry because the angels... Curses are to the kingdom of darkness what, what blessings, proclamation, and prophecy are to the kingdom of light. The angels use curses as permission slips. They will ride in on your legitimate human and even authority as a believer, Christian authority, to begin to afflict people if you curse them. And we've got to be very, very careful. That's why we'll give answer for every idle word. We can actually curse our family by saying negative things. And the enemy will use that as permission slip. Oh, hey, he, he's the dad, and he's the one who said it. He's the one who said that young man will never live up to his potential. He's the one who said that he's going to be a loser and he'll never be anything. Then they go to work using that legitimate authority of that father and begin to afflict that child with that mindset and begin to lie. Now, I'm not trying to put any condemnation on anybody this morning, but we need to break those curses that we've spoken by repentance and say, God, I'm asking, Lord, I take those words back and I'm asking, Lord, let them fall to the ground. Lord, I'm asking that you would heal the minds of our children and our loved ones. Lord, we, we, we repent for the things we've said. We need to realize the, the weight of our words because just as the angels will take those legitimate prophetic words, that's why in the book of Revelation, when John is writing the word of the Lord given to him, he writes it to the angel of the church. Why? Because the angels are the ones that go to work to build the prophetic future. Some people want to water that noise. Well, an angel means messenger, so he's, he was the pastor. It's not what he's saying. There are angels over churches that are assigned to churches to help them fulfill their destiny. There are angels over families. So let me land this thing. It was a number of years ago now, and uh, I had a very painful conversation with one of my kids. And being a teenager, that child of mine said some very hurtful things. And, and, you know, every accusation has a measure of truth in it or you'd reject it. None of my kids have ever accused me of 
dressing like a clown every Tuesday morning and going out and juggling on the street corner. They, they, there's no truth that I wouldn't. What, what they, they, but they, people will say things with a measure of truth and overshoot it, and the enemy will ride in on that and torment us. And I was so hurt, but more than that, I was so concerned about the trajectory of one of my kids' lives because they were not in a good place in their teen years. I was very, very concerned. And so the night before all of that happened and nobody knew, just, well, there was a few people. Roger and Vicky knew, just a few people. And I came into the office, none of the staff knew, and I was, I was hurting, man. I was under a cloud and questioning everything, you know. You know, one of those things where the enemy comes in and pretty soon you're questioning, you know, do I even deserve to be a parent? Do I deserve to be a pastor? Oh, do I deserve to be a wife? You know, all that stuff. And I'm in my office just sitting in there in a funk, and my brother, my bald-headed brother, calls me from his office. Dave, are you available? I could tell he's in an encounter. I said, I'll be right in. I go in his office, and he's sitting in his chair, and he's, he's just sitting there in the presence of God, and I could feel God's presence when I went in. And Christopher said, when I got to work this morning, the Lord was here waiting for me. He said, I had some work I had to get done. There's some things I had to do. So I went and did them. I came back, and he was still here. He said, I've just been being overwhelmed by his presence, and I felt like I should invite you in. And then he said this, and he said, I felt this power, this powerful presence on my right side, and I, I asked the Lord, what is it? And the Lord said, it's a familiar spirit. And Christopher was taken aback because he felt like it was a positive thing. And the Lord said, it's an angel assigned to your life and to your family. Now what's interesting is I talked to Christopher last night. And well, climbing into bed, he, he texts me, boop, boop, what are you preaching on tomorrow? So I started, I put this big long thing all about what I'm talking about. And I said, and I couldn't help but think of that encounter we had in your office. And he said, yeah. He said, oh my goodness. He said, you know, the Lord told me it was a familiar spirit. And it kind of took me back. I had forgotten all about that. But that's exactly what the Lord was talking to me about this week. And I immediately thought of that situation. And this is why. When he said the Lord told me it's an angel assigned to our family. All of a sudden, I saw this angel. As my brother's describing it, I am blown away. This is one big honking angel. I guess the Olsons needed it. What, one of the things that stood out to me is his wrists were about this big around. That's a big person. And I, I don't know why this stood out to me, but it had these big, like, brass wristbands that you'll see on soldiers. It had these big, and it was just standing there in his office, this massive hulk of a being. And Christopher started to tell me, he said, the Lord told me this angel is assigned to our family line. And it, it's, been, it's been fueled by grandma's and our mom's prayers. My grandma was a very, very broken woman. Her husband raped her older daughter. She divorced him. Then her landlord raped her, and that's my youngest son came out of that. She was always very, very poor. 
but got radically saved. And the only time she was ever really happy was when she was drunk in the spirit. They would carry her out of services. I came by it honestly. But she was a woman of prayer. And when I backslid, and I, my, my brother and I, we were out living crazy lives. I mean, we were homeless, and they were always wondering, man, are we going to get a call that our kids died? And we got car wrecks and wrapped cars around trees and all this crazy stuff and should have been dead. And, but there was an angel assigned to our family line that was stubbornly pursuing, I am going to fulfill the purpose for the Olson family. And it's not a coincidence that that angel showed up in my brother's office with the presence of God and gave him a message. I've assigned an angel to the Olson family. It's not a coincidence that happened the morning after my heart was broken in a conversation with my son and I was so concerned, God, what's gonna happen to him? The direction he's going is not good. And that was God's little kiss to me, telling me, listen, I'm already on this thing. And I needed to know that I can pray and I can declare the purposes over my family. And when I do that, those angels will pick up those prophetic purposes. And I'm going to tell you, don't be discouraged when you don't see things physically. You never know. My oldest brother, John, he was absolutely nuts. He ended up in a psych ward the last time when he got saved. But he was crazy. He lived for years on pills. You couldn't talk to him. He, could, he, he, had, he was so demonized. And unbeknownst to us, behind the scenes, God was dealing with him. We would witness to him and he'd, he'd get in our face and tell, you know, just say the craziest things that he seemingly really believed. But in reality, behind the scenes, in his heart of hearts, God was already dealing. He got saved. He got saved, but he was still arrogant enough that he wouldn't tell us. He didn't tell us he got saved. He started reading his Bible in a psych ward. Next thing we know, he's kind of cleaning up, and he's always been a hippie-looking dude. Still is. But he started to change slowly. I'll never forget, we found out he was walking with the Lord. We were stunned. Still concerned, but stunned. Christopher, myself, my brother-in-law, and my brother John, the one who'd gotten saved, he was about maybe a year into his walk with the Lord. We were heading to Chicago for a conference with John and Carol Arnott. And on the way, my brother John speaks up and says, yeah, this dude I used to do drugs with, he got saved in jail. Dude, it is so weird to hear him talking about the Lord. And all of us went, yeah. We couldn't believe that was coming out of his mouth. It still wigs me out. You know one of his favorite things? You go down to his basement, he's got this library. And he loves to do Greek and Hebrew word studies and get into, I'm like, you're over my head. Come on, dial it down a little bit. You know, dumb it down so I can understand you. It is an amazing sign and wonder. But I'm telling you, it was a mama's prayers, a grandmother's prayers, and it was a, a servant, a ministering servant sent to serve the heirs of salvation and get the Olson family into its promised land. And I'm telling you, that is not isolated merely to the Olsons. There are angels assigned to your family line. 
There are things that God wants you to bring, bring you into. Okay, I got three minutes. I'm gonna talk at three speed. Anybody ever listen to books like three times the speed so you can listen to more? I do that. Um, I wish I could talk like that. Here's the thing. How, how do we break with those demonic familiar spirits and cooperate with the family the angels that are assigned to our family. I know this sounds mystical and weird, okay? I'm telling you, it's in the word, okay? How do we do that? Number one, to break with the past. We've got to repent of the sins of our forefathers. You say, well, pastor, I got forgiven. I'm not talking about forgiveness. I'm talking about failing to recognize the dysfunction so you replicate it. It's not the things in your family that you recognize. Whoa, we were really a mess. It's the things that you don't recognize the rest of us do, though. I'm just kidding. It's, it's the things that other people recognize and you don't. Those are the things you're destined to replicate. And so how do we, how do we repent of the sins of our forefathers? I, Rick, raise your hand. Rick, Rick, Christ's life. We were just talking about the ultimate journey. The ultimate journey will help you evaluate the dysfunctional patterns in your life. Because those patterns are the landing strip for those familiar spirits to keep enforcing the negative consequences into the further generations. And God wants to deliver you from those things. He wants you to go from glory to glory. So repent of the sins of your forefathers. In other words, you change your mind. I'm not in agreement. Honor your forefathers. Forgive them. Don't have bitterness. Honor them, if nothing more, than for their position. You wouldn't be here without them. And so honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and you attract a blessing from the Lord. But then you also, you call a spade a spade. And some of you, you need to learn to honor your family because there's such bitterness that you can't attract that blessing. You're still living in bitterness and you're giving the enemy legal right. There's other of you that you got the honor thing down so much that you can't call a spade a spade in your family. You can't admit that there was garbage in your family. I, when I got saved, I felt like, who am I to correct anything in my family line? These people put up with so much and prayed me in and there were things that I had to recognize okay there's things mom and dad could have done differently my kids are doing the same I encourage them to do so so there's that tension we need to live in and we need to begin to discern what our family carries we need to discern those things and I'm going to tell you one of the ways in which you discern the negative of the past generation and discern what God is bringing into your life is through getting into the word and devouring it and being very, very intentional about going after the truth. Too many believers simply get the truth passively. Well, I go to church and I listen to sermons and if something lands, I'll apply it. And then there's other people that say, I'm going after this thing. I have got to know. I've got to have truth. I need to, know, I need to know what God has for me. And they are actively pursuing. They open the word and they say, God, I want to find myself in this book. I want you to speak to me. Show me things. And I'm telling you, we need to be engaged in being very active in going after the things of God. God has a call on your family. And it is bigger than you think. It is greater, the impact of this thing. Don't, don't fall into the trap of looking at one Isaac and think, well, I guess that's all it is. That is the seed, that's not the harvest.
okay? Isaac was the seed that would give birth to an entire nation. And God has put seeds in you that he wants to, he wants to, there are things, imprints in human history he wants to leave through your life and through your family. And we don't have time to get into it, but let me say this one thing, and you can stand so you know I'm gonna quit as I say it. Here's the other thing. The other thing about this generational momentum, okay, God is always operating generationally. We need to realize, we've talked about this on Father's Day before. I was reading in Genesis, I want to say it was 42 years ago, and it said this. And this is the story of Jacob. The very next phrase, Joseph, a boy of 17. And I'm like, back up the theological truck. Beep, beep, beep. I looked at that again. It said, this is the story of Jacob. And then it says, Joseph, a boy of 17. And I thought, that is so strange. Because at that point that it says it's the story of Jacob, it begins to talk about Joseph. And if you look prior to that, it had already been talking about Jacob's life quite a lot. About his marriage and having children and all this stuff. But it wasn't until it introduces Joseph and his story of touching a nation that it says this is the story of Jacob. So what's the deal? Your story is what comes from you. You are your mom and dad's story. And you need to be concerned with that because that's part of your inheritance. But what you really need to be concerned with is not what you do with your life, but what your kids do with theirs. Spiritually, your spiritual children and your physical children. Because I'm telling you, the story God is writing about you is through the lives, what they accomplish. The major part of what your, there's a lot of guys get so caught up in trying to write their dad's story, they fail to write their own. They are trying to be something and trying to be something. And at the end of their life, you open up their book and it's blank. When in reality, if we will be something through those we're pouring into, we'll be something. And we'll, we'll end up writing a good story for our parents. There's a generational thing to this. And all of this stuff of familiar spirits and angelic spirits are after the same thing. Your inheritance. Let me just read this and then I'll... You're like, Pastor, you made a stand. Okay. I'm, I'm going to write it, just read through a summation. The Lord spoke to me the other morning about how the angelic is to the kingdom of God, what familiar spirits are to the kingdom of darkness. I understood that to mean that there is one dimension of angelic ministry that covers what familiar spirits attend to hijack in the believer's life. Familiar spirits attempt to create belief systems and entice behaviors so they can enforce the negative consequences of past generation to visit them upon future ones. But one of the primary functions of the angelic is actually the same dynamic, but for good. The angelic is sent to serve the heirs of salvation. They are here to move us into our inheritance. As the Lord was speaking to me, I couldn't help but think of that encounter I had. Just as a familiar spirit attempts to leverage generational curses, and those curses are largely psychological, behavioral. It's not, you know, woo, spiritual stuff. The spirit comes after the fact. You deal with the, the beliefs and the behavior. The spirit has no landing place. The scripture is very clear. A curse looks for a place to land, and if it has no legal place to land, it goes back to the one who sent it. So deal with the landing strip. 
Just as Solomon reminded, okay, this, this is something we didn't even get a chance to get into. Just as familiar spirits attempt to leverage generational curses, the angelic leverages the righteousness and prayers of our forefathers to move us into our inheritance as families. I'll leave you with this. This is a pregnant thought. Just as Solomon reminded the Lord of the sacrifice of his father, Solomon's prayer in Psalm 132, O Lord, remember David and the suffering he endured. Why would you say that in a prayer? How many of you have prayed, God, remember what those dead guys did and answer their prayers? I have too. Vicki, you're one of the weirdos. Vicki does too. No, it's because she understands a principle that we can leverage, we're leveraging the righteousness and the prayers again and again throughout scripture. For the sake of David, I will do this thing. For the sake of Abraham, I want him to say, for the sake of Dave Olson, in a hundred years, I will do this thing. Okay. (laughs) Father, we thank you this morning. Just lift your hands to the Lord. Lord, we're asking that you would teach us that you would train us. God, that you would open our eye, the eyes of our understanding in the word. God, that we would be thoroughly biblical and that we would go for all of it, Lord. Lord, deliver us from reducing the scriptures to our experience. Let us stretch our experience to the level of the scriptures. And Lord, I'm asking God that you would go to war in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to be intentional about uprooting and breaking up those pathways that the enemy traffics in our life. God, make us aware of those entry points. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.